0: Friends, we're continuing our worship series this morning, which we began last week about icons, icons of the faith, those iconic figures whose lives and witnesses teach us something about what it means to be faithful disciples of Christ. And so we're putting each week as we meet a new icon up on the altar, but you will see that who we met last week, Julian of Norwich, is over in the window over here. And so this is what we're going to be doing, is we're going to be bringing them up to the front and then sending them off to the sides to sort of be peering in on us, to create a gallery of sorts, of the various icons looking in on us as a reminder of who they are and the lessons they have to teach us. Today we have the opportunity to encounter Harriet Tubman, who you may be familiar with, and I hope that we find something new and fresh in her story this morning. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Is it not just a little bit absurd to think that we might have what it takes for God to seek us out when the important work needs to be done? We can look so insignificant when measured against the imposing presence of God's most faithful disciples throughout history. Their overwhelming legacies hint at unimaginable skill and talent and wisdom and confidence and influence and who knows what else that we everyday people of faith can hardly imagine. Who are we to go and do anything remotely like they once did? As best I can remember, I met Harriet Tubman first in my elementary school curriculum where she was presented as more mythological hero than historical character. We learned that in some distant past that seemed like ancient history to the elementary school mind, that Harriet had ferried slaves to freedom on the Underground Railroad, which wasn't an actual rail- railroad, but this clandestine network of sympathetic individuals willing to offer shelter and aid and transportation to escaping fugitive slaves. It was a dangerous journey, I learned, beginning under the cover of darkness and led only by memory and the North Star overhead. Harriet made this journey time and time again, bringing freedom to so many slaves that I would have believed it if I was told that she was the only conductor on this underground railroad, which was neither a railroad nor underground. I don't remember ever seeing an actual picture of her, only ever illustrations, always carrying a lantern, leading forward into the shadowy woods with crowds of faceless silhouettes following behind her. It was almost as if a photograph would have made her seem too real instead of this extraordinary and supernatural phenomenon. Harriet Tubman was sometimes called Moses, I learned, drawing a parallel between her and the greatest figure across all of Judaism, Moses, who led God's people to freedom from Egypt. Now, this could be quite the title to live up to, except that Moses' story, and Harriet's too, as it turns out, is a reminder that God works extraordinary things through very ordinary people. Despite what we might let their legends imply, neither Harriet, nor Moses had any inherent qualities destining them for greatness. In fact, Moses was rather worried about how little he had to offer. Moses is a man in hiding. When we come to him in this morning, scripture deep in the desert of Midian and far away from the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt that he has convinced himself he can do nothing about. Because he did try once, He had been adopted by Pharaoh's family at a young age, but Moses himself was an Israelite. And he was appalled to see firsthand the forced labor of their slavery. And when he witnessed an Egyptian beating one of his own people, he stepped in and he killed the Egyptian. Except that this was no great comfort to the Israelites who question his understanding and commitment to their plight. And when Pharaoh catches wind of the murder, Moses takes off and he runs for his life. He settles in Midian, where he marries a woman and tends to her father's flock. A long time passes, Scripture tells us, before Moses' past catches up to him again. And on that fateful day, Moses is out with the sheep on a mountainside, where he sees a bush on fire, but somehow not burning up. And letting his curiosity lead him for a moment, Moses goes for a closer look, and suddenly God is talking to him, From within the bush. God calls his name out twice. Moses. Moses. And there's no mistaking that the fugitive in hiding has been found out, and he dutifully takes off his sandals as instructed before he hides his face in fear. But God isn't there about the Egyptian that Moses has killed. I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt, God says and explains to Moses. I've heard their cry of injustice. I know about their pain. And in one sense, it is hardly a surprise that the Almighty God would be aware of the Israelite people's painful captivity. Yet at the same time, it is always a welcome balm to the afflicted to know how intimately familiar God is with their suffering. Throughout all of history, there is no oppression that God has not seen with an ever watchful eye. And there is no cry of injustice that God has not heard with an ever-burning compassion. God knows the pain of the enslaved and the exploited of every time and every place. And so God knows still the injustices that plague us today. How the shadow of slavery somehow still lingers in systemic racism. How sexism dismisses the stories and experiences of women How many labor in unfair working conditions and are not paid a living wage. How access to health care varies with financial status. How immigrants are dismissed and exploited. And how anti-Semitism continues to impact Jewish communities. And how violence of every manner continues to take its toll on all of creation. God has seen and God has heard all those who eke out their lives under the toil of today's forms of oppression. God knows, and God will not rest while they suffer. I know about their pain, God explains to Moses. I've come down to rescue them. This would have been good news for Moses, who himself clearly cared passionately about the enslavement of his people. It would have been great news to celebrate and rejoice and shout to the world from the top of that mountain if God had not been looking so directly at Moses while speaking to him. God wasn't there just to explain, but to enlist. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, God says to Moses. So get going. And Moses balks. He's not sure he's the right person. That he, He's not sure that he has what it takes, what it surely must take to do something exceptional like that. Who am I to go to Pharaoh and do this thing, he asks. And as the text continues, he resists time and time again. But he does eventually go and lead the Israelites to freedom. What changes his mind? Harriet Tubman must have asked herself the same question, who am I to go and do this thing at least once or twice? Her legacy has been shifting ever so slightly in recent years as the mythology has been pushed aside to reveal a more historically accurate figure, which only makes her achievements even more astounding. Harriet Tubman was born into slavery around the year 1820, the fifth of nine children living on a plantation on the eastern shore of Maryland. As with all slaves, Harriet worked from a young age and she endured countless brutalities. Once when she was an adolescent, she was sent to the dry goods store to purchase supplies for the plantation kitchen. There she met another slave who was owned by another family who had left the fields without permission His overseer was incensed when he found him there and demanded that Harriet help restrain this other slave. Harriet refused, and when the other slave ran away, the overseer took a two-pound metal weight from the counter of the store and threw it after him. But the weight missed, and it struck Harriet in the head instead. She described it later as breaking her skull, and she began experiencing episodes where she would have seizures and fall seemingly unconscious without warning. These episodes would last the rest of her life. Years later, Harriet made her first attempt at escape with two of her brothers when it looked like they were likely to be sold, making the already poor fate of a slave owned in 1849 even more uncertain. But on their way, her brothers had second thoughts about the dangers ahead of them, and so they all returned to the plantation. Soon after, Harriet did make her own escape to the freedom of Pennsylvania, But it wasn't long before she began to worry about her family and her friends back in Maryland. And I suspect that she had to have wondered who she was to go and lead anyone to freedom. She had a persistent and unpredictable illness, and she would be placing herself in considerable danger to go. Even living in a free state didn't mean that Harriet had much by way of position or privilege to leverage in her favor, Even when she was able to buy property later in life and start her own pig farm, she awoke one morning to find that all 40 of her pigs had been fed poisoned food and died overnight. Even after she served as a nurse and a scout in the Civil War, she had to fight for her $20 a month pension, and she only started receiving it in 1899. She was illiterate her entire life and never received any sort of education. Who was she? to go and lead anyone else to freedom. But she did. According to history's best estimate, Harriet Tubman made 13 trips to Maryland where she led some 70 family and friends to freedom. And she instructed another 70 or so freedom seekers from the Eastern Shore who followed her guidance and made their own journey to freedom. What changed her mind? Years later, following in the footsteps of both Moses and Harriet Tubman, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. found himself asking the same question they had asked before him. He was now part way into the civil rights movement and found himself awake and unable to sleep in the middle of the night, petrified at the thought of continuing on any further. He made himself a cup of coffee and sat in his kitchen and wondered how he he might be able to step aside for someone else who might have what he clearly did not to do the thing ahead of him. And he prayed to God and said, I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And that night, Martin Luther King Jr. received the very same answer that Harriet Tubman and Moses had before him. To Moses, God promised, I'll be with you. And Martin heard the same promise that night. Stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever, is how he put it later in his recollections. Harriet Tubman would always attribute her own accomplishments and her fortitude to her faith. And she would pray, Lord, I trust you. I expect you to lead me. And God did. What changed their mind was the unshakable promise that God would be with them. Who are we to do anything? The world is filled with burning bushes and God is sending all of God's people out to work for justice and for peace. But we don't have what it takes. And we don't have to have what it takes. We don't have to have anything because we do not go alone. God is with us. And so when summoned, when given the chance to go, we might pray, Lord, I trust you. I expect you to lead me. And as God did for Moses and Harriet and all those others who have gone before us, God surely will do for us as well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I'd like to invite you to stand as we continue in worship with our next